Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. It's a very personal thing, but throughout my career, from my time as a teacher to my time as a banker, I have seen just how important culture is to successful organisations. Culture is difficult to define. I think it's even more difficult to mandate. But for me, the evidence of culture is how people behave when no one is watching. Now, guess who that was? Uh, well, you've already given it away, haven't you? But uh, it's, uh, it, I, otherwise, I would be struggling, I have to say, really? to, uh, to find the right man. <laughs> but these were the words of Bob Diamond, one of Britain's most controversial bankers, in his inaugural BBC Today business lecture in 2011. Now, we're going to come to him in a minute, but the real subject of today's podcast is, is the bank he ran, Barclays, a great old name. And one of Britain's four, four is it four great clearing banks? Uh, yes, yeah. at the time there were four. Anyway, but we thought we'd do a bit of social history, looking at Barclays over the past 50 years, how it changed and, and how it also changed the country around it. And some of the key people who made that change. And now who better to discuss these issues with than Philip Auger, a former banker and well-known author who's written perhaps the most definitive account of Barclays in the modern era, the bank that... Lived a little. a little. It's a riveting read, and uh, it's a great book. Welcome, Philip. Thank you very much. You can see you're among friends here. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you for those those kind words, Neil. And I mean, I think you're you're right to start this off with a a quote from Bob Diamond, um, this kind of seminal figure, really, in in what Barclays is now, and also to pick up on the theme of culture, because that actually is is at the heart of the Barclays story. And in a way, it's at the heart of where the bank is now, too. Well, maybe we can start by going back in time to, let's say, 1970. Can you give us a sort of picture of Barclays in that year? It's an interesting time to start. 1970s, 1970, Barclays is absolutely stuck between the old and the new. The previous year, it had just moved into its new head office, 54 Lombard Street, and it symbolised the old Barclays, uh, portraits of the founders on the walls, arcane dining room protocols. There's a, a squash court in the basement and even a rifle range. They talked a lot about shooting at board meetings. They should be talking about firing, I would think, but still, I think they probably didn't uh, mean the individuals. Sorry, go on. (laughs) It was quite a good idea because the thing we're best at is shooting ourselves in the foot. But uh... (laughs) yes, (laughs) there's presumably a rifle range with a huge foot at one end of it. So you've got the you've got the the new building, but it's like the old building. It's a bit of a time warp. The board is still populated largely by family members, representatives of half a dozen of the founding Barclays families were were still on the board. It has a vision of itself as a very great bank. That's always been part of the Barclays story. It was originally a Quaker bank, but that's long since passed. The defining characteristic by 1970 was there's still a family influence. It still regards itself as a great bank, but the world is changing around it. Banking had been a very cosy, protected world. But by the 1970s, the sector opens up to competition. The old banking cartel in which the 
clearing banks, fix the interest rates, that's gone. The Bank of England frees up lending constraints on it. And we're in the go-go years of the early 70s. And Barclays is determined to compete within those years to maintain its position as a great bank. So that's that's the UK picture, which is that, you know, under Ted Heath and, and so on, the the home market becomes more competitive. But also there are changes in the wider world, because being a great bank was sort of linked to the fact that Britain had been a much larger part of the world economy in the past. There was the overseas and empire division of Barclays. So how is the wider world changing? And is that something the directors are worrying about? Yes, it is. I mean, to be part of Barclays' vision of of itself as a great bank is that in 1925, it formed a a business to bank in Africa called Barclays Dominion Colonial and Overseas. By the 1970s, the overseas bank was contributing about a quarter of profits. But as you say, Jonathan, in the 1970s, things are changing. There's a revolution on Wall Street. The US banks are getting much more aggressive. There's a revolution in the bond markets. The euro markets are opening up nibbling away at the fat margins that were available in corporate lending. It's not just the Americans coming in, the the Industrial Bank of Japan are, are, are muscling in. Some of the European, the smart European banks are getting in there. All over the place, Barclays' core business is, is under threat. And it ties up, I think, a bit in the 1970s. Barclays has this picture of itself as a great global bank, a bit in the same way that Britain sees itself still as a great power and both are under pressure in the 70s. But then we come to the your special subject which is 1983. Yeah well if you punch above your weight you can expect to get a bloody nose uh, <laughs> and certainly that's what happened. Well there were two key events weren't there? There was the scrapping of exchange controls and the, okay, uh, yes, the no scrapping of dual capacity. In other words, the fixed commissions, which were scrapped as part of the settlement with the government over Big Bang. And these were two seismic events, which basically changed the whole world of banking, as well as that of securities, and put them closer together. In your book, Philip, there's an interesting character who essentially persuades Barclays that they should make a sort of quantum leap beyond the sort of traditional banking business that they have been doing and get into the business of sort of security trading and market making and all those things they do in the stock exchange. And that's Lord Camoys, who's the sort of person who inhabits both worlds, I think it's fair to say. Yes, Tom Camoy is um, aristocratic, in some ways uh, an example of the old school, but he's also a Wall Street trained banker. He's, He's bustling, he's determined to get on. He sees all of the things that Neil has just described as threatening Barclays' core business. Corporate lending is going to come under pressure. The American banks are going to come in. He's determined that Barclays would participate in this. It actually becomes the defining moment in Barclays' history. Barclays, like many of the other banks, decides to buy up a broker, a jobber. It hires lots of traders and uh, smart young men who are going to be stockbroking salesmen, and it tries to compete with Wall Street. And as most of the other British banks found out, it turns out to be a disaster. Do you think they actually understood what they were doing? Absolutely not. And to be fair, um, none of us uh, who were working in the city at that period really understood how big and dynamic the city was going to be. 
the game rapidly became much, much bigger than the, than the Brits could cope with. The 80s sort of had come to an end. There were still a number of British sort of small investment banks, merchant banks operating then, but they're all sort of struggling to make ends meet, really, by the end of the 80s. And then there's a sort of clear out in the 90s. It's the middle years of the 90s. Bearings falls over quickly. Warburg, which was probably the bank that looked most likely to challenge Wall Street, they fell over, sold themselves. They all get out of it. The one that's surviving, actually, is still Barclays. And Barclays is still determined to make a go of it because it sees itself as a great bank. And then we come to the 1997 and a new chief executive at Barclays, Martin Taylor, comes not from the industry, cool-headed, clear thinking, and he forms the view that um, Barclays simply can't make a go of this. He sells the equities and corporate finance business, shrinking Barclays really just to a bond trading house, a much less grand ambition. The board absolutely hate it. They feel that Taylor has pulled a fast one on them. It's a very acrimonious board meeting. He wants to go still further, but they absolutely, the board dig their heels in. And in the end, there's a standoff between Taylor and the board. And effectively, um, Taylor has to leave, leaving Barclays at the end of the 90s with a simply really a, a bond business. But it's quite a good bond business because it's run by a guy called Bob Diamond. But just before we go from Martin Taylor, because I think he is an interesting guy. He certainly is. And it was one of my, <laughs> Do you remember big, him? It was one of my major scoops getting his appointment was a breath of fresh air at, at Barclays, without a doubt. I think his big mistake was that he had no allies inside the bank, and so he was hugely exposed. And as you just said, Philip, that in the end, they got him. Martin Taylor finally goes after he comes up with this idea to, to split Barclays in two. You can see it as a kind of interesting intellectual exercise, but was it at all realistic that an organisation like Barclays would have broken itself up in that way? At that time, I think it was. And actually, Diamond had grown that bond and derivatives business into quite a powerhouse. But you could still have separated the two. And I, I mean, what that would have meant really was either selling the bond business, possible but difficult, or simply winding it down in an, in an orderly fashion. You could have done it at that time. And I suppose that, that was the period where most of the other clearers, so NatWest... Lloyd had pretty much exited this world, and they seemed to be doing quite well. Yes, NatWest around this time sold its uh, sold its uh, investment bank to Deutsche Bank. Lloyd's, interestingly, alone of the clearers in the mid mid eighties, decided not to go into investment banking big time. They've stayed pretty much clear of it all the way through. So we're now in the, in the late nineties. Martin Taylor goes. He sells off part of what had been. BZW, the investment banking side, he's left with this bond business under the command of Bob Diamond, an, an American. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his background and how he ended up running it and also what his brilliant idea was? Bob, very smart, New Englander. Father was uh, a school teacher, headmaster in the end of a school, very big family. Father worked part-time as a milkman to make ends meet. Bob was given a lot of support from the family in terms of encouragement, but didn't no great financial means. Bob worked babysitting, clearing snow, fought his way up the hard way, started off working in industry. And then his mentor went off to work for one of the big US investment banks, took Bob with him, started off in the back, in the back office, gradually clawed his way up the ladder and ended up as a pretty big hitter 
Barclays hired him when his own career, Bob's own career, was at a bit of a turning point. He'd got squeezed out of uh, Credit Suisse. I think, in a sense, Barclays, Barclays got lucky. You've got this highly intelligent, market-focused, hard-charging American investment banker who's prepared to move to London and who wants to give it a go. It opens up the option again of getting back into broad-scale investment banking, building up the kind of business that Martin Taylor took them out of. And of course, the board love it. He also has this idea, doesn't he? He has this idea that European single currency is going to create this great big kind of capital market in Europe, like the American dollar market. And that's going to mean that if you're focused on that business, you can make lots of money effectively doing bond issues for large European companies. Yeah, that's how Bob describes it. (laughs) But you don't believe... you You think that was just cover for what he was really up to? It's really hard to to build an investment bank from scratch. Whether that stroke of genius on the European single currency was a big part of it, I I wouldn't like to say. But um, the main thing was just building an investment bank of scale brick by brick. Whatever else you may say about Bob is 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 an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. Let's come to the crash of 2008, because that's obviously an important moment in the story. How reckless was Barclays in the run-up to the crash? So by 2008, Diamond has built a cracking bond business. The, the chief executive is John Varley, who sort of comes across as a cross between a country vicar and an Oxford don, but is, is actually a very hard-headed businessman. And Varley has persuaded the board that Barclays should be not just one of the top 10 universal banks, but it should push for the top five. And it can only do that by making a big acquisition. So in 2007, luckily, it narrowly loses out to RBS in the auction for the Dutch bank ABN AMRO. But so the crash comes and Barclays, along with everyone else, are left sort of licking their wounds. But they avoid, by hook or crook, the need to go to the government, cap in hand, largely by doing some very complicated deals. They go to another government, essentially. Yes, (laughs) They're determined to avoid accepting aid from the UK government. The reason they're determined to avoid it is that they know that with Her Majesty's Treasury as shareholder and with the Bank of England even more closely involved, there would have been no support for this universal banking strategy, for this strategy of a full-scale investment bank in all markets. And so they resist resist this at all costs. They raise um, £11 billion from Middle East investors, controversially. And then as part of that, they also sell the jewel in the crown, their Barclays Global Investors, their index tracking business for $15 billion. They survive by hook or by crook. In the carnage after the crash, they pick up the wreckage of Lehman Brothers. And so we're into 2009 now. They've got their all-singing, all-dancing investment bank. They've shored up the balance sheet through raising money from the Middle East and selling BGI. And they're set fair, you'd think. So there's a very strong sense, though, that they're quite tin-eared in their dealing with the regulator. So in 2007, during Northern Rock... Bob Diamond stands up and criticises the bank for not lending more to banks or that are in difficulty. This is regarded as a slightly antisocial interjection. And then you have this thing, some very curious sort of things which are obviously designed to try and shore up the business, but give the impression of being highly overcomplicated deals. To what extent does this whole business contribute to what happens later on? 
Massively. And I think it's part of Berkeley's history. They're always pushing the rules to the limit. I mean, between the First World War and the Second World War, Berkeley's is, is censured in the Chancery for putting its own interests above those of clients to whom it's a trustee. The same period, its branch managers are allowed to sell insurance policies to banking clients, and they're allowed to keep the commission themselves. That sounds like PPI. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always there. So now into the big financial crisis, the Treasury and the Bank of England are furious that Barclays has wriggled off the hook. They don't like the business model. They don't like the kind of complicated tax structuring deal. They're getting really, really cross with this. And they get even crosser when in 2010, John Varley retires as CEO and Bob Diamond takes over. Bob Diamond goes straight off to see the House of Commons Treasury Committee. And this is what he says. He says, Barclays Capital doesn't compete with Lloyd's or Northern Rock. It competes with JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. It's the very kind of thing that the Bank of England and the Treasury don't want to hear. <laughs> but then, then in 2012, something happens. The LIBOR scandal breaks. This is the first bank to settle. They think that they'll get credit for doing that. Instead, they become a lightning rod for the industry. Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, this is his chance to nail Bob. Bob is, is, is eased out. It's a chance now for the Bank of England to kind of get Barclays back on, a, on, on the straight and narrow. Barclays board still don't get it to start with. They suggest a new chairman and new CEO who would have been carried on with the old strategy. The Bank of England are saying, no, we can't. We want something a bit less ambitious here. And so in the end, Barclays appoint a retail banker, Anthony Jenkins, to take over with the clear mandate, I suppose, to shrink the business to something more manageable. Yeah. There's an old Warren Buffett quote about uh, putting a manager with a great reputation together with a business with a terrible one. And it's generally the business that emerges with its reputation intact. I mean, <laughs> I mean do you think that Barclays, I mean, has changed its spots since this somewhat searing experience of, you know, the headmaster finally getting the cane out of the cupboard? Because Anthony Jenkins, the supposedly anti-Bob Diamond CEO, he's pretty quickly ejected because they say he's trying to cut back on their global ambitions. Do you think Barclays has really changed its spots? Jenkins is replaced by uh, a senior JP Morgan investment banker, Jed Staley. Yeah. He's a bit of a diamond lookalike in a sense. He's had a distinguished career on Wall Street. He's a New England boy. And he kind of comes up with a hybrid solution. It's not going to be a, a universal bank, but it, it's not, nor is it going to be Jenkins Retail Bank. It'll have retail banking and investment banking, and it'll be a transatlantic bank, not a global bank. And that actually is the strategy that they're pursuing now. Um, Staley goes as well. The new man, the new man, uh, Mr. Venkatakrishnan, is actually, it seems to me, pursuing the pursuing the Staley strategy, the transatlantic axis. A new chairman, Nigel Higgins, a former Rothschild investment banker, clear-headed, diligent, does his homework. It's the Staley strategy that they're pursuing now, I think. But still accident prone. We had the episode last year when they are fined $350 million by US regulators for overissuing securities they shouldn't have been trading. It's another example of shooting themselves in the foot. Yes, that was really embarrassing incompetence. I don't think there was any malice. It was just uh, demonstrated the uh, failure of the back office, really. Barclays, 50 years on, we started in 1970. Do you think it's kind of now figured out what it wants to be and where it's going? 
Or do you think it's still kind of bouncing around looking for the answer? I think the institution has decided where it wants to be. I'm not sure whether the outside will believe them yet. <laughs> Nigel, Nigel Higgins has refreshed the board. It's a, a different looking board to the way it used to be. There is, there is, there is more ex- specific financial sector expertise. The new people are, are less wedded to the Barclays is a great bank idea. I think that the kind of hybrid strategy of a transatlantic axis is, is 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 pretty much where they want to be. The problem is, though, that this bank is at a 50% discount to book value. And Lloyd's, the, the retail bank, and now NatWest, which is back to being a retail bank, they're trading at roughly book value. You have to say, why is this? The answer, I think, is that investors aren't sold on the investment banking concept, and they aren't sold on Barclays' ability to run an investment bank without regular accidents. Yes. Well, uh, I think that the market's uh, verdict on what percentage of book value it should trade on is the most interesting indicator. Generally, banks have been a terrible investment over the last 20 years, really. And uh, I think it's going to take a long time before people start saying we might add something to the book value for the value of the actual running the business but it's not there at the moment yeah i think the answer is stop making mistakes (laughs) philip last thing bob diamond stories (laughs) (laughs) oh go on go on be one you can tell us (laughs) i think highly of bob i tried to be an investment banker um i tried to build a business myself at natwest and then at schroeder's he just did it much better But there's something about Bob which is to do with delivering bad news. And when you deliver bad news to Bob, he gives you an absolutely icy stare. Mm. It's intimidating. Sort of like Paddington Bear, you mean? A hard stare. One of Paddington's hard stares. (laughs) I gave the Diamond Camper a copy of the the, the proofs. And and, and the message came came back, you know, Bob doesn't like the book. And so, well, I wasn't really surprised about that. But uh, <laughs> what particularly he doesn't like is the is the business of the icy stare. Oh, right. <laughs> he sees himself as a cuddly sort of character. <laughs> we used to we used to meet for, we used to meet for for breakfast in in Claridge's to to have our to have our sessions, and it was agreed that we would have a meeting where Bob could raise this issue with me of the icy stare, and it was a beautiful meeting because. The one technique Bob couldn't use with me was the icy stare. <laughs> it's like facing a gunfighter who's got no guns. <laughs> I always found Bob to be um, a very decent subject and actually um, a decent guy. I, I, I give that anecdote in, in, in a spirit of friendship. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.